Happy 4th of July, everybody. So we've got a special episode for you this week. It is our live show, which we are super pumped to bring to you. So during the show, we talked about the idea of maximum pressure, which is a term that's basically the closest thing we have to a Trump doctrine. Uh, we're going to talk about where it comes from, how Trump has used it, and whether it actually works. And while we'll break down all of this, we won't touch so much on Iran, which is the country receiving the most maximumist pressure right now. Uh, it's because we were afraid a lot would change between when we taped the episode and when it would air. But this will give you a toolkit to understand what's going on with Iran, as well as the broad arc of Trump's foreign policy, which we know is something you care about. Enjoy. We are here at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. We are going to be talking about, what is it, Jen and Alex, what are we talking about today? Maximum pressure. Maximum pressure. So we're talking about this idea that the Trump administration has developed. Now, the term comes from North Korea policy, but it's really been applied across a vast swath of different foreign policy arenas. And it's become kind of a, a watchword and watch concept for the way that the Trump administration thinks and deals, particularly with countries it has differences with or it sees as hostile. But first, let's start with this origin story, as we usually do on Worldly. So, Alex, North Korea, right? So where does this notion of maximum pressure come from, and what did it describe? Yeah, uh, so first, I feel like just from the beginning, maximum pressure kind of describes Trump's foreign policy way better than America First does, and I, and I hope this episode helps explain that. Um, so, I hope so, too. Yes, don't we all? So, uh, starting with North Korea, you may remember in 2017 that it looked like we were all going to die in a nuclear hellfire. You know, we were talking about fire and fury. We were talking about totally destroying North Korea. And the reason this happened is because North Korea was testing a whole bunch of missiles. They had ICBMs, which could reach uh, the entirety of the United States. And Trump did not like that. He had vowed to stop North Korea from having this. And so what he said, basically, not as coherently as I'm about to say it, but what he said was look, I'm going to place a ton of economic pressure on North Korea, a ton of diplomatic pressure on North Korea to the point that it has to come to the table and negotiate a, a way to dismantle its nuclear program. And uh, skipping a little bit ahead, we can debate this. It kind of worked, right? Hitting to 2018, North Koreans show up at the Olympics. North Koreans show up in Singapore, especially Kim Jong-un, to meet with, with Trump. And so you can sort of be in Trump's head kind of going like, wait, this gambit may have worked. Like as long as I put tons of focus and economic and diplomatic pressure and threaten a military force if need be, then maybe I can get what I want. And so if if I'm thinking about like Trump's foreign policy origin, origin story, like if this were a horrible Marvel movie, like it kind of starts with his North Korea thinking. Yeah, so I actually placed uh, the origin story a little bit earlier. How dare uh, you? He was bitten by a radioactive spider. Um, so... I think a lot of this actually just comes from his kind of roots as real estate guy in New York and kind of like hard hitting tactics that he seems to think are effective. You know, maximum pressure essentially is a fancy way of saying bully the other guy to the table. Right. So you just got to be the tough guy. Push him, push him. Don't back down. Don't back down. Make him come to the table. And, you know, I think he actually brought a lot of his instincts. You know, Trump tends to govern based on his instincts. He's always talks about like from the gut. Right. And I think North Korea was his first big, like, real foreign policy challenge. He always talks about Obama pulling him aside, you know, in the White House and saying, look, North Korea is going to, like, be the biggest foreign policy thing you're going to face. And it was, um, you know, with them starting to, to test missiles and, and weapons um, right off the bat. And so I think he basically just kind of winged it and, and went with his gut and was like, OK, fuck it, maximum pressure. So he relabeled them a state sponsor of terror, which we hadn't in a while 
replace economic sanctions and really push them. And I think the lesson he learned from that is that it worked, right? Like he at least got Kim Jong-un to come to the table. And there was a lot of fear at the time, right? Like that Fire and Fury era was really fucking scary. People were starting to buy like those bunker things where you can like survive. And it's because like the maximum pressure thing was a huge gamble, right? It was this like, what if it works? And I think what he learned is that, yeah, like you can get this guy if you're tougher to back down and you can get them to come to the table and hopefully you fall in love and write each other letters. Right. So that, that that's what actually happened, right? So it wasn't a policy success in terms of there being appreciable progress on North Korea's right. nuclear program. Right. Like what you and I, you being the collective you here, would refer to as a policy success, getting some kind of reasonable concession from North Korea on its nuclear program, not what actually happened. Right, right. right. We got uh, some they, stuff. We got hostages back. We got some. Yeah, back. yeah, yeah. Like, but it in the meantime, North Korea got their nuclear program legitimized, and they got a friendship and diplomatic recognition, which is sure. what they were wanting the entire time, right? Maximum pressure didn't turn out to be like force them to do something that they wouldn't want to do otherwise, and or make a meaningful concession. It was leverage the threat of military force and a significant amount of economic pressure into some kind of diplomatic negotiation and sit down. Basically a chat, right? Where you can in theory get them to concede something that you want. That's all it got that time. So to call it a success, I think is to sort of misplace the substance of the issue. Even if perceptually you're both right that in the president's mind, it probably was. I will say one thing, like North Korea has kind of stopped testing. I mean, yes, it did two ones fairly recently. They were short range, but like at the end of the day, and, and but for the record, I actually give Kim Jong-un credit on this. Like, he had said in his speech, I'm done testing. I got my weapon. I'm good to go. I don't need anything. So, like, for Trump to say that, it was all me, baby, uh, I don't buy. But you like, do that Trump impression throughout the day? Or is this no, because like that, was, that was just, I don't know what that it was. was. Real bad. <laughs> as long it was bad. you a, do your Gollum impression. It, it wasn't a Trump impression, but it also wasn't anything either. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, so, like, I just want to be clear that, like, was there some success? Yes, in the sense that North Korea stopped doing things. I do give Kim Jong-un credit. But I guess I'm just still trying to get in the president's head, as we've been saying, like, the things he wanted, no more missiles to make him look bad, sitting down with Kim Jong-un, being the first to get him to a table, like those things he got. So if there are successes, it's Trump got what he wanted, regardless of whether or not it's a good thing. Well, he wanted denuclearization and he didn't get that or come close to it. Like that was the stated goal of a lot of administration foreign policy, even though it was on the- Yeah, but the stated goal of administration foreign policy does not mean the stated goal of Trump. I want to talk about other instances of maximum pressure. Right, um, chapter so, two. Right, chapter two, so to speak. Uh, And that's Venezuela, I think, is a really important case in understanding what maximum pressure actually is, right, in the way the Trump administration uses it and is not. Because in Venezuela, there was was an interesting extra wrinkle, right, of him trying to force the government not towards some kind of policy concession, but towards actually toppling the Venezuelan government altogether. Right. So just for listeners, I'm sure everyone remembers Venezuela so closely, but since, you know, our Middle East Institute. I'm pretty sure last time I checked, Venezuela isn't located in the Middle East. So yeah, you know, you have Juan Guaido basically declare himself the rightful legitimate president because the previous regime, the Maduro regime, the election wasn't totally on the up and up. And he's like, yeah, because of that, you know, you weren't, you know, legitimately reelected. So I'm the president. The U.S. promptly backs him and says, yeah, Juan Guaido is totally the president. Absolutely. You know, Maduro stepped down. And there was no 
you know, we want to figure out a way that like we get, you know, like the, the Assad model, right? Like a government that still includes some parts of the regime, but just without Assad. Like it was literally like, no, Juan Guaido steps in, Maduro, you step out. There was no like room for negotiation. There was no like gray area. It was like get out or else. And I think where we started to see that maximum pressure, you know, they started to, uh, and we can talk about the PDVSA, um sanctions, but, you know, applying same thing, sanctions, 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 diplomatic pressure. And, you know, I think you started to see the limits of maximum pressure, right? And we can get into that in a second if you want to talk about the, the PDVSA sanctions. Sure. I mean, I, just to be clear, like it, the, the Venezuela thing, and I had talked to Jen about this at the time, I actually was very impressed by the initial campaign because it was, here is an interim president. Here are a bunch of countries joining the United States to recognize him. Here's an economic sanctions plan. And by the way, there's the threat of military force that I randomly said one day in August that it like threw us all for a loop. But still, it, it had the maximum pressure outline, and yet it seemed like the U.S. had an entire plan behind this. And it rolled out pretty successfully. It rolled out fairly successfully. You had Guaido say his, make his claim. You had people in the streets. Like, it looked kind of good. And then they went overboard. So um, on the sanctions plan, and I talked to people in the administration at the time, who they basically said that the entire like sanctions plan to get rid of Maduro was supposed to end with uh, sanctions on Pedavesa, which is the acronym for the major oil company. I was wondering, you guys kept saying that. Like, yeah, I, I, finally, I finally... The state oil company. The state oil company. Um, we can go through the whole name, but just remember Pedavesa. Please don't. Yeah, exactly. And they went through that in like a week, maybe a little bit more. That was supposed to be the final step in the entire plan. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, you know what it makes you think of? You know that episode of Arrested Development where Job like has all these talking points where he's supposed to go in to he's get a job at the, the rival real estate company. And like Michael gives him all this stuff and he reads it in like five seconds. And like those were supposed to last him for like the, the year. And he's just like reading them, blah, blah, blah. That's kind of what it was. Like, no, no, no. You were supposed to like space these out. You weren't supposed to do all of this shit in the first week. And then so, they ran out of stuff. So the Venezuela policy was the Job speech form policy. Um, <laughs> but all this to say that like the maximum pressure has its limits here in the sense that if the straight goal is to just be tough as hell from the start, there is some value in that. But if there is no after effect... If there is no plan D, E, F, G, whatever, whatever the alphabet is, then you're, you're kind of out of options. So they they use the Pedavisa sanctions. They put that in place. Maduro is still in power. And it's like just a couple, a week or so after Guaido said he's the president. And now the Trump administration is, is caught re like red hand in effect. And now they have to create a, a maximum er pressure. Right. And so like, the, again, I get the theory and I get why they placed it on Venezuela. And to be fair, for a while it looked good, but they just did not think this through. And it wasn't very clear. It wasn't just a well thought out plan. It was just the goal was to be tough from the start. Right. The, I think yeah, that's another important part of maximum pressure when we're talking about what this thing means. It's tempting to ascribe a, uh, a sort of plan when you say maximum pressure, like we're pressuring towards some end. And there's often a vaguely defined end goal. North Korea gets rid of all its nuclear weapons. Venezuela ends its government and installs a new one that we like more. But those, there's not a really strong connection between the means, the sorts of pressure that the U.S. can apply, and the plausibility of those ends. It's just the idea of using whatever available tools are necessary towards this kind of improvisational uh, scheme for getting to an end that is not particularly likely. 
for me, I think actually what failed in that sense is Maduro was like, no, I'm just literally no, like I'm not going to step down. And what do you do? Like, but we sanctioned you. We're going to extra double sanction you. Like at a certain point, the maximum pressure has to be military force, right? Like that's that's the next thing. And that's what was like underlying the entire threat the whole time, right? Like eventually that's your maximum, maximum pressure. Except the problem is like everybody knows Trump does not want to start or at least theoretically doesn't want to start wars in other places, right? Like America first. And so you kind of run up against like, well, we used up all of our ideas. So now it's either, you know, military action or nothing. And I think there's another issue, too, which is uh, paying attention. Trump kind of just stopped paying attention to Venezuela, which I think is a problem if you have a very targeted, focused campaign and uh, it doesn't pan out, and then you just go, I'm distracted now. What else can we do? Hey, Iran. Like, so, right. no, you think she might be joking, but actually there's an article in the Washington Post very recently, about four days ago, uh, five, where they basically said that Trump was bored with Venezuela, yeah. that it wasn't working, and he was really mad. And the quote from the president in the piece is that he thinks that John Bolton and other people in the administration got played by the Venezuelan opposition, who tricked them into backing an opposition that had very little hope of actually toppling the government. So that's the the degree of the president's seriousness about the application of maximum force towards a particular end here was largely beginning and ending with the degree to which it seemed like an easy win for him. And when military force, as Jen said, no longer seemed like a particularly likely or effective outcome, maybe it wasn't ever in the first place something that he wanted to do, they didn't do it. And so that was the end of maximum pressure on Venezuela, which is now question mark pressure. Right. And I think there are a lot of lessons learned, right? Trump, for all of his foibles, does seem to somewhat learn his lesson, or at least, you know, it confirms things he already thought, which is that he doesn't like John Bolton, mostly because of the mustache, honestly. But uh, and he literally said that, which is amazing. But I mean, I think he did realize, like, if you are not willing to actually use the military force that is underlying your entire threat, then if you make that threat and don't use it, then you look kind of weak or there is no maximum pressure or you don't actually end up getting to the policy you want. Part of that you see reflected in his decision to kind of pull his punch on the military strike. But oh, go ahead. Alex would like to say something. No, sorry. Uh, I'm, I'm genuinely going to ask you. So you can like, is Trump too dovish to make maximum pressure work? No, I think. <laughs> I'm going to say no too for the record. <laughs> well, I don't think it's, it's dovish necessarily. I think, one, I think on Venezuela, he didn't re- like it wasn't him. It, you know, I remember you and I having conversations a lot during the time when we were all paying attention to Venezuela, you know, trying to figure out, like, what is it that the Trump administration cares about so much in Venezuela? Like, of all things, there's this even this quote that Trump, you know, it was reported that he said um, that he said something like he was complaining to McMaster and and his generals and, and Mattis and saying, you guys want to invade everywhere except where I want to invade. Yeah. yeah. And so he was like whining. But I think, honestly, it's more about he didn't have skin in the game. He didn't really care about it. And I actually think that we see that across foreign policy. I don't think he actually gives much of a shit about Iran. Honestly, I think he just wants to, you know, look like he made a better deal than Obama. But we'll get into that. Um, Yeah, that actually connects to something that Alex said that was uncharacteristically insightful earlier on, Um, which is that. uh, Yeah. (laughs) Which is that, like, maximum pressure is in some ways more of Trump's foreign policy than America first. 
and when we talk about maximum pressure, we're really just talking about the Trump foreign policy towards other countries. We brainstormed a few of the different countries before we started taping. We actually do, contrary to appearances, prep the show beforehand. Mostly by drinking. Um, and, and there are some good examples that we came up with, right? So, Jen, you had one you felt strongly about. Yeah. So my first thought was, well, duh, the Palestinians, right? Like if you're looking at Israel-Palestine and, and the way that the Trump administration has gone about trying to make peace He's used essentially the maximum pressure toward the Palestinians, right? Cutting off all aid, basically doing everything Israel wants, uh, you know, moving the, the embassy, right? And it's it's not like carrot and stick, right? It's not like we'll give you a little, we'll give you a little here. You know, we'll push Israel to do this thing here. It's literally like we will cut off everything and force you to come to the table. And I think, again, we've seen in that case that people can also just literally go, no, like I'm just not going to, I could also not come to the table. And like, what are you going to do? nothing right like there's no there's no end there it's just like okay what happens if someone can out bully you or can like can stand up to you and there doesn't seem to be an answer for that like what happens then um so i think to me the palestinians and trump's approach to it and i think we're seeing that with you know the economic plan and the fact that this entire grand vision for the future of empowering the palestinians didn't actually talk to any palestinians about that which it feels a little difficult to like empower someone if you don't know what the fuck they want. Just my thoughts on that. But to me, that's one of the clearest, I think. Mexico? Um, well, yeah, that was this one was mine that I came up with. And I, I think... I was oh, no, no, this is mine. Um, I can't tell you guys apart. And <laughs> it's an interesting example because there was never any threat of military force. There wasn't like Trump seriously going to invade Mexico. I believe at one point he'd float a plan for potentially sending U.S. troops south of the border, but no one took that too seriously. Um, it's maximum pressure, I think, in the sense that he's proposed some truly outlandish economic mechanisms that you wouldn't ever think would be applied to a neighboring American country or, a, or one that the U.S. has relatively good relations with. Like recently, there was the threat to impose escalating tariffs on Mexico if they didn't stop all Mexican goods, if they didn't stop... Uh, undocumented immigration to the United States, which is bonkers because we import a lot of stuff from Mexico and also because they can't really stop undocumented immigration. But this is something that Trump really did care about, contrary to, I think, Jen's correct analysis of Iran and some of these other situations. Uh, he really does care about undocumented immigration and is willing to do whatever he well, thinks except is for, necessary. You know, his wife, but right. Whatever is necessary too soon? to stop this kind of thing. Not too soon. It was like the 80s. Whatever. Damn. Um, I do think that this is a characteristic of his willingness to try to bully around a country to using economic, all economic tools that are available to try to get something that he wants. And at the same time, an inability to come up with a plan B if that doesn't quite work out and turn into the capitulation that the administration wants. But in that case, it kind of worked, right? I mean, he has this like phantom deal that like maybe does or doesn't exist with the Mexican government. Like he had this piece of paper that was signed by someone. We're still not really sure. Yeah, who. And it doesn't say anything. The whole thing was so transparent. You could literally see through it. And that's not a metaphor. Like that's how we know it's in it. The president was holding right. the picture. Right. So, I mean, maybe it was a stunt. Maybe it wasn't. Right. But I think you have seen the Mexican government step up like enforcement, including like using like military tactics at the border to try to stop people from crossing. So I think, you know, in that sense, it, it did work because, I mean, they showed up really quickly and were like, hey, you guys want to talk about some stuff? Because we don't want those sanctions. You know, but I think it also, you know, the maximum pressure campaign works in very specific instances, but it's absent, you know, in foreign policy, we talk a lot about like grand strategy and grand strategic vision and things like that. And, 
you know, one of the things in foreign policy is if you push this lever, you know, then this thing over here moves and you're like, oh, shit, well, I can't like I can't push China on trade because I need them on North Korea. So I got it, you know, and Trump doesn't seem to really think about that. He doesn't seem to, you know, issue linkage, right? Like he doesn't seem to understand that. So like when he was pushing Mexico, like it was also at the exact same time that we were trying to get the USMCA ratified uh, the trade deal to replace NAFTA. But, you know, like there was literally at the exact same time we were trying to like get this big trade deal signed. We're like, we're going to sanction you and tariff you. What? Like it literally makes no sense in terms of like a broader foreign policy. But it's just this like, I'll fucking bully you until you do whatever I want. And I think in this case, you did see Mexico go, all right, look, we'll we'll come to the table. Uh, I will do China super fast. And that's a topic that deserves a quick analysis. Um <laughs> The bottom line with China, as you all well know, as we started a trade war, we're all going to be poor and not eat avocados anymore. Um, that's Mexico. Uh, but, those famous Chinese avocados. Famous, love, love Chinese avocados. Uh, mm. But like, point being, like, it's it's billions of dollars worth of trade stuff, and it's, it's slowing global progress. And the reason Trump is doing it is because he's worried about trade deficits, which we can another day we'll have a whole conversation about why trade deficits are are the most overblown threat of all time. But like. His whole plan was China has been screwing over the U.S. economy for years. By the way, fact check true. Fair. Yeah. Fact check true. Um, and the only way to stop them is by tariffing them. Uh, fact check. Eh. And uh, but that's been his plan. And and so his whole thing is like, what if I just completely upend the most important trade relationship in the world in order to get what we want? Faulty assumptions there being that uh, Xi Jinping cares what Trump thinks, um, that China wants to completely change its entire uh, M.O. on how it deals with the economy, including stealing our intellectual property, including forcing our companies to um, like give them their IP to just even enter the market. There's a, it's a massive issue. And like I get why they're trying to restructure some stuff. But the notion of just putting some trade tariffs on, like it's not really putting that much pressure on China. It's definitely putting the pressure on us as the consumer. Um, and so all this to say, now that we've talked about those three, I'm calling bullshit on this entire segment because, uh, told us that at the beginning, <laughs> surprise twist ending. All right. The, I'm not Shyamalan. Get on with it. <laughs> no, the reason being that, uh, no, I mean, I totally get why these can sort of be considered maximum pressure, but what I think actually matters in this analysis is, is there a credible threat of military force at the end of it? And I don't see that for Palestine. I don't, I don't see us attacking Palestine. I don't see us nuking Mexico City. And I don't see us going to war with China, although we've sent some patrol um, ships through the area. So, like, whether or not you think Trump is actually willing to go through with the military option, set that aside. Maximum pressure requires that at the end of the economic and diplomatic pressure, there be the credible threat of military force. And we've seen that for North Korea. We've seen that for Venezuela. Um, and we're seeing that maybe with Iran, although that's a harder case to make now. But point being that, like, I just don't see that with those three uh, episodes that we've talked about, although I can see why the case can be made. Yeah, I have. Hang on. I have a a quick through line that can bring us to Iran Um, for me. And and I think that you have a lot of that is right. Not all of it, as usual. But just kidding. It's good Um, to me. I think like the big through line here is if you look at maximum pressure works until you run up against someone who just says no. Right. Like you have to be the bully and you have to out bully the other side. And that works with Mexico when you are clearly like a stronger economy, right? Like you clearly have like a lot more economic and military might that you can just lord over someone, right? Um, It worked with North Korea for other reasons because Kim Jong-un wanted to be seen as, you know, 
engaging on the international stage, et cetera. Um, so it was in line with his own interests to do so anyway. But I think what you see with China is like, you can't fucking bully me. Like, we'll bully you right back. Tariffs, boom. I hope you enjoy your soybeans. Like, they can fight back. I think Venezuela too. Maduro was like, yeah, no, I'm just going to keep being president. Hope you can and enjoy I think yourself. when, <laughs> I mean, I enjoy soybeans. I, get, I don't know. I don't really enjoy them. But, the show is designated vegetarian. I can say, yes, I do right. enjoy soybeans. But I mean, I think, and I think that brings us to Iran, right? It's like you now are seeing them trying to use this maximum pressure against a regime that is like literally founded and built on resistance. And it's literally like its entire like raison d'etre is like, nope. I'm doing the middle finger for our listeners. Um, but literally, I mean, I think it, seeing if you run up against someone who can be bullied and can be cowed is one thing. And I think Trump took that kind of those lessons and then not understanding himself. Um, and I think to some degree, his administration understanding what Iran is and like what their regime is based on and the entire ideology that they're based on is like literally like resistance and fighting back. And you try to bully them, and that's when you've seen this reaction that they should have seen coming. Yeah. I, the other thing I'd add is that when we're trying to define maximum pressure here, it's not like any of us actually have a definition in mind in the sense of like there being a White House document that was like, this is what maximum pressure means. There is no White House document that outlines the White House strategy because there is no White House strategy. There's and eventually tweets. things get made up, right? Yeah, some there great, are tweets. tweets. There's some good tweets. There's John Bolton's mustache. And there's a few other things we've discussed on the show, but they don't amount to a coherent strategic, a coherent strategic doctrine. What they do amount to is a bunch of things that have some similarities. And we have to, as analysts and observers kind of put them together and figure out how these different things relate to each other and try to see if there are any kind of patterns in there. So Alex, yes, in two cases, the, the classic maximum pressure cases, there's military force involved as a threat. And Jen, yeah, it typically works better when there are countries that are more susceptible to pressure than in other ones. Right. But what we're really trying to do is to coin use an offhand term, really, that the White House used for its North Korea policy to describe all of these different things. It's impulse to say a lot of really angry things up front, often in tweets, and try to back it up with substance. And that's not a doctrine, as much as we're trying to make it sound like one. It's, it's New it's, York real estate yeah. bullying. Like, it's literally, I go back to that orange origin story, I, I swear, I think, I mean, and he's talked about this, like, you know, his business instincts, right? Like, you can just be, like, a tough guy and, like, bully the other guy, you know, and I think you, know, you saw in his business, previous life as a businessman, f fighting back with like lawsuits and you know gumming up the works with you know pushing back and stalling and stalling and stalling in the courts and things like that. And I think you can see that in like the foreign policy space. He's essentially just operating on his gut, like you said. There's no strategic doctrine. And I think the problem too is that you know you actually have people who are old school foreign policy hands, particularly John Bolton but also you hit Mattis and McMaster, right? People who actually do think about strategic planning, uh, who are trying to essentially cobble together some sort of coherent narrative strategy. And then Trump just fucking tweets something and you're like, that's not part of what, oh, stop it. So like you say that with Iran, right? Like the entire narrative about pulling out of the nuclear deal and why it was bad is because it didn't deal with the other parts of things that Iran does bad, right? Like sponsoring terrorism and its missile program and stuff. But then you had Trump literally just out there tweeting and saying left and right, like, oh, we all we care about is nuclear weapons. We just don't want them to have nuclear weapons. Cool. Did you hear about the JCPOA? Because 
you might want to read up on that. Um, and it was weird because it was like, wait, but your whole point of pulling out was because that wasn't enough. And now, so you can see this like really weird disconnect and schism in the administration where who the fuck speaks for the administration? What is policy? Is it Trump's tweets? Is it Pompeo's like 12 point plan for how Iran needs to change its behavior? I think that's where you get to it. It's like maximum pressure has to be part of like some broader strategic plan rather than just like Trump trying to be a tough guy, right? All right. Uh, that's our show for the <laughs> evening. I want to thank our producer, Bird Pinkerton, who's been sitting out there. I want to thank the Washington Institute for Near East Policy and Link for having us. This has been a really, really fun evening. Thank you, Erica. And yeah, I want to encourage everybody to rate and subscribe and review to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. 